Well, two weeks ago in our study of Colossians, Paul spoke to us about having Christ in the home. And he briefly touched on the basic responsibilities we have as wives, husbands, children, and fathers. We noted that wives are to be subject to their husbands, recognizing the headship Christ has given to husbands in the home. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. Children are to obey their parents, and fathers are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord without exasperating them through too much, too little, or inconsistent discipline or unrealistic expectations. Well, today Paul moves out of the home and into the workplace, and he paints a picture of living for Christ on the job. He begins by making it clear that we, in fact, work for him. We're in Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Now, obviously, this was written to slaves. And when it was written, half of the population in major cities consisted of slaves. Now, when we think of slaves, we think of unskilled laborers working in the cotton fields of the South. But in the Roman Empire, slaves came from all walks of life. Some were unskilled laborers, but many were craftsmen, even professionals. They were teachers. They were doctors. They were lawyers. And they made up the workforce in society. Now, most of them had become slaves through conquest. But they were every bit as much a slave as those born into slavery or sold into slavery. And they had no rights whatsoever. Even their life was at the whim of their master. It wasn't until Constantine in the 4th century that laws were passed to protect the life of a slave. And some find it hard to understand why the Bible does not condemn slavery. And we must acknowledge that Paul says nothing about the institution of slavery here. He merely addresses the behavior of slaves and, as we'll see, masters. His primary concern apparently was not social reform. It was changing people. And by changing people, he knew that society would eventually change. But that's not the issue here. The issue before us is the behavior of slaves. And what he has to say to the slaves of his day, can I think, believe, I believe, apply to employees in our day? 
After all, when you agree to work for someone, you essentially become their slave for a salary. And the first thing Paul says to slaves or to employees is that we are commanded to obey those for whom we work. And just as he told children to obey their parents in all things, so he tells employees to obey their employers in all things. Now again, this is conditioned by the expressed will of God. If God has commanded us to do one thing, and our parents or our employers violate his command, we obviously have to respectfully decline to obey them and suffer the consequences for doing so. As a general rule, we are to obey them, and not just when they're looking. The phrase, not with external service, actually means not with eye service. It's a term that Paul apparently coined to express the fact that we're not just to obey when the boss is looking. And when computer terminals first became common in the workplace, I understand it was a real temptation for workers to play games on the job. I'm assuming that's all past now. Uh, anyway, to avoid getting caught, some actually programmed a boss button on their computer. Whenever the boss came by, they would simply hit the boss button and they'd be back to work. Well, there should never be a need for a boss button on our terminal. Why? Because the one who keeps an eye on us while on the job is Christ. He's the one we fear. The one we respect. He told us to obey. And he watches to see what we do. Why? Because his reputation is at stake in our job performance. If we've taken the name of Christ, everything we do is done in his name and is a reflection on him. Remember what Paul said back in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul told Timothy, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine... What we're taught may not be spoken against. And he told Titus to urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. His reputation is at stake in whatever we do. So we must put our heart into every job we do. That's what Paul means when he says, work heartily. No matter what the job, 
We are to do it with a whole heart because we're doing it for Him and His glory. In reality, Christ is the one for whom we are working. And if we remember that, it will affect our performance on the job drastically. And not just because he's watching and we know that we can't hide anything from him, but because what we do is done in his presence and we want to honor him. In fact, when we are working for him, everything we do becomes sacred. Now, this is important. A book entitled, Your God is Too Safe, written by Mark Buchanan, had some very important things to say about this sacred and uh, secular divide that's in our minds today. He says, the Bible makes no room for the idea of the secular, something that's separated from God. In biblical worldview, there is only the sacred and the profane. And the profane is just the sacred abused, unkempt, trampled down, trivialized, turned inside out. It is just the holy treated in an unholy way. When we remove the false distinction between sacred and secular... See all things existing by Him, for Him, and through Him, we are then free to redeem many so-called secular activities for the kingdom of God. Why can't we gather our whole lives into the divine embrace? Why have we such a ready impulse to see pastoring as a vocation and plumbing as a job? Why can't we practice a different way of seeing where God is honored as much in the well-spliced pipe as the well-spoken sermon? Our world is full of haste and hustle. God has become merely another appointment in a crammed daytimer. When is there time for God? There is so much to do. Oh, yes, how we would love to take a year off, live in a monastery, study at a seminary, hole up in a hermitage with just our Bibles. How different our lives could be if we instead made work into worship as working for the Lord, not for man. If we will remember that we are working for Him, our job, whatever it is, will become an act of worship. I love that idea. Had you ever thought of that? What you are doing in the workplace, if you're doing it for Christ, is an act of worship. What you're doing in the home, those who work at home, if you're doing it for the Lord, it becomes 
Not menial labor. It becomes what? An act of worship. That is so mind-boggling. Hang on to that. Whatever you do for the Lord is an act of worship. Understanding that may not change the workplace, but it will change us. And if we're working for Him, we will be rewarded by Him. And that's Paul's next point, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Why do you get up on Monday morning and go to work? The answer seems obvious to make a living. To provide for your family, to provide for your future, to make money, to get things. Obviously, we think of work as it relates to material reward. But should that be our primary focus? Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, made it clear that working for material reward is a futile effort. In Ecclesiastes, he raises the question, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What profit is there to the workers from that in which he toils? His answer points out the futility of trying to find satisfaction in the material rewards we receive from our labor. He writes, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Writing of his own experience, he wrote, And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this is my reward for all my labor. And thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He concluded, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor, that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Obviously, there's no advantage 
in toiling for the wind. No long-term advantage. You might catch an occasional breeze, but it won't last. The same is true of our labor. If it's done only for material reward. If our ultimate objective is to get things, we will never be satisfied. And our life will have been lived in vain. Because we will leave this life just as we came into it, with nothing in our hand. So why do we work? Paul says, we work to receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, what inheritance? Our eternal reward. Now, that doesn't mean that we earn our eternal reward by working, by being good employees of God. We all know that it's a gift we could never earn. This is merely a recognition of the fact that it is our eternal reward that gives all of life meaning, including our job. Even slaves could find meaning in their labor if they recognized the fact that they were working for the Lord and that He would one day reward them with an eternal inheritance. You know, our jobs may help provide us with sustenance for our journey and even make possible a pleasant journey. But the accumulation of things is not the goal of our journey. The only thing worth investing our life in is our eternal reward. And we must never forget that. Never forget that when we leave home and go to work, we're working for an eternal reward. Our satisfaction doesn't come from a paycheck. It comes from the inheritance we'll receive at the end of life's journey if our life has been lived working for the Lord, serving Him. And everything we do, everything we do, should be an act of service to Christ. If we'll keep that in mind, our jobs will take on new significance. And even if we aren't paid what we think we're worth, even if we're paid nothing as a slave, we can work heartily for our masters, knowing in reality we are working for the Lord. He is the one we want to please. And the one who will ultimately reward us for a job well done. He's the one to whom we are all accountable. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, there's an awkward chapter change there. And commentators are divided as to whether verse 25 applies 
to slaves or masters, employees or employers. I think we can simply apply it to both. Employees and employers will both have to answer to the Lord. Employees for the kind of job they did and employers for the way they treated their employees. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Employers must be both just and fair in the treatment of employees. And it's good that Paul said both just and fair. If he only said fair, we might misunderstand what he meant. You know, fairness to us is often self-centered and it's comparative in nature. We cry, no fair. If someone gets something we don't, be it a promotion, a raise, or whatever. But fairness doesn't mean employers have to treat all employees alike. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard makes it clear that the employer has the right to do what he wishes with whatever is his, as long as he honors his agreement with his employees. Very important parable. If you agree to work for $20 an hour, and someone else is hired for the same job at $25 an hour, you have no right to complain. The employer is being just and fair with you as long as he does what he said he'd do. What he does for someone else, male or female, is irrelevant. That's important for us to remember. Because it's when we start comparing notes that we become dissatisfied and even bitter over our brother's good fortune. Being just and fair has nothing to do with treating everyone alike. And employers are not required to meet our self-centered definition of fair. But God will judge those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. Who don't give what is due when it is due. Leviticus even says the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. If you said you would pay them at the end of the day, you must pay them at the end of the day. James goes so far to say that the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. Employers are accountable to God for the way they treat their employees. And he will judge them accordingly. As Paul said, Masters, you too have a master in heaven. If Christ is Lord, 
We have a master in heaven. And employers and employees alike are all working for him and will be rewarded by him. If we all believed this and practiced it, there would be no labor management problems. Now, I do need to add that our behavior is not dependent on the behavior of someone else. And we've talked about this with husbands and wives, where a wife might say, well, if my husband would sacrifice for me like Christ the church, then I would obey him. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't matter what the other party does. You are judged for what you do. If you're an employee, you're judged as an employee. Okay? It doesn't matter what your employer does. The employer is accountable to God. And God will judge him. That's the way life works. That's the way it ought to work. Obviously, if we live in a society where both employers and employees honor the Lordship of Christ, we've got a great society. But we don't have that. So we do our part to make this world better by honoring Christ in all we do. As an employee, or as a boss, or whatever. That is how we honor Christ. Christ. You know, we argued today, and we're always hearing about the 1% here and the 2% there, and on and on and on and on. That's irrelevant. That is irrelevant. The difference between slave and master, employee and employer, would fade into the background as we recognize that ultimately... We are all working for Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. That is the key to a life that is fulfilling. That's what makes your job on Monday important. Because it's an act of worship. This is so important. And again, we may not be able to change our society, but God can change us. And we can enjoy our life if we acknowledge Christ's Lordship wherever we are. Because what we're doing is for Him and for His glory and for His honor. And He sees it. And we serve Him heartily with our whole heart because we know He's going to reward us eternally for serving Him faithfully. No matter what you do, long for the day when you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That changes life. Again, it's important that we gather together for worship on Sunday. It's important that we study God's Word together and come to understand what He's made possible through Christ. But we also worship on Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And not just because we've come to Bible study. Not just because we come to every activity when the church doors are open. 
Sometimes churches are too open. And they take you away from what God has called you to do in the workplace. We've got to balance that out. We want the church to equip you to be faithful to Christ outside these walls. That's our goal. And that's his desire for you. If you're not serving him, I invite you, I plead with you to do so. It'll give your life meaning. And it'll give your employment, whatever it is, eternal significance. You'll not always be looking for the grass is greener somewhere else. You'll say, Lord, use me where I am today. And if you put me someplace else tomorrow, I'll serve you there. But it's in your hands. You're the master. I'm not. If you promise to serve him to the end, you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. And whatever material rewards you receive from your labors will actually pale in comparison with the riches he has laid up for you. Come and promise to serve him. You'll be eternally grateful that you did. And Monday morning, tomorrow, will be another day of worship. Let's serve him.